Welcome to the Strategy and Leadership Podcast brought to you by SME Strategy. My name is Anthony Taylor and I'm going to be your host today. On the Strategy and Leadership Podcast, we interview senior leaders and thought leaders to get their best practices for leading teams, for driving and executing strategy, and other best practices as it relates to leadership and team development. And our goal here on the Strategy and Leadership Podcast is to bring you practical and executable tips that you can use right away to support the growth of your organization or your business. So if you enjoy today's episode, please be sure to subscribe. You can follow us on YouTube for other bonus content on strategy and leadership, or, and you can join in on the conversation on Facebook in the strategy and leadership community. So I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. My guest today is Brad Chase, who is the author of Strategy First, How Businesses Win Big. He is a consultant, speaker, and longtime senior Microsoft executive. Brad, how are you today? I'm terrific. Uh, glad to be here. I'm excited to speak with you. I'm just glad we got to connect. I love your background. I love what you've done. Just for our, I'll ask you what you said, but you know, in your LinkedIn bio, 14 years at Microsoft as a senior and finished as a senior vice president, worked on the MSN uh, transformation, worked on projects, Windows 98, 2000. Obviously, you know, if you haven't heard of Microsoft, I, I don't know, you know, maybe you're just born, but such a cool company. And then looking at what you've done since then in the, you know, 17 years of board work, advisory work, but why don't you tell people a little bit about your background that I haven't explained and, you know, why do you like strategy and, and what gets you up in the morning? Okay. Glad to, uh, you caught the highlights, which is great. You know, over a decade, I've done board work. I've worked for a wide range of companies in a lot of industries, you know, from consumer to enterprise, from small business to mobile. And I've held a lot of leadership positions on boards, both profit and nonprofit, you know, ranging from Expedia to companies you've never heard of to, you know, like small startups to nonprofits like the Boys and Girls Club of King County or the Nature Conservancy. And I've done a lot of public speaking on strategy. Uh, before that, I was a senior exec at Microsoft, spent a lot of years on many different products, led a turnaround as Amazon, as you mentioned, was very well known for the leading the marketing and strategy and execution and worldwide launch of Windows 95, which is you know often considered to be the event and product that ushered computers and software, and for that matter, Microsoft and Bill Gates into the mainstream. And we won lots of awards for that effort. And I just posted, by the way, uh, the real behind the scenes story of how we got the song Start Me Up from the Rolling Stones to be the theme song for the uh, TV commercials we ran with Windows 95. And that has been blown up on, uh, on LinkedIn. So it's been fun to have people hear that real story. And then, you know, I've, um, I've done a lot of personal giving and, and um, you know, sort of other projects. But that gives you a, a brief summary anyway. You know, we'll we'll dig into that. And now I can't stop watching in my head Steve Palmer bounce around a stage and get really hyped up. But anyway, let's start at the beginning. You you're working at Microsoft. You're you're in this marketing role. You're developing a new product. You are you guys on the cutting edge of innovation. If you can take us back to that point, you know how does that kind of innovation culture get fostered in an organization? And then I'll sort of 
add on the fact that it is 2020, the world is being disrupted both technologically and, and physically because of this COVID virus that we're still you know, dealing with. Are there any parallels to the culture of innovation that you had in, in Microsoft is in the need and desire to innovate and create something new? And then if there is some sort of lesson to be learned in 2020. So you can take that wherever you want to go with it. Wow, man, you're giving me a, a big task there. So, uh, so the first thing I would say about Microsoft is that Microsoft made a very early bet on the personal computer. Remember, when, when the personal computer first started, it was a hobbyist machine, and not a lot of people sort of thought it would be a mainstream device. And that bet that Microsoft made was the foundation of its sort of success over time. It bet on the personal computer, that led to a bet on computer languages, which led to a bet on operating systems, which led to a bet on what we called GUI, graphical user interface, or Windows, basically, which led to a bet on applications uh, in all that. And all those bets uh, were the key foundation of what Microsoft was all about, uh, because without making the right bets, it really doesn't matter what culture you develop. So that was really important, having Bill and the team's leadership. Um, now, the company culture was sort of reflective of the leadership, as in almost every company. And in an, in an area where, like tech, where innovation is really, really important, our culture was dominated by sort of the same principles and characteristics that Bill and the leadership team reflected, things like self-criticality and learning, accountability, lots of intensity, dealing with change, relentlessness. Uh, strategy was considered super important and hiring smart people that could adapt was considered uh, more important than experience in those days for Microsoft. And when we did something right, uh, we kept at it and we did something wrong, we kept at it. And that was sort of the culture that got built. Uh, you know, we worked incredibly hard, long hours, and that singular focus getting things right, and and those bets that I mentioned earlier led to the early and sort of success of Microsoft and the long-term foundation that built the today's success. And then what were the, because I, you know, again, in the iterative stages of your career, what did you learn about leadership? What did you learn about strategy that now translates into the work that you're doing with the other organizations that you support? So the most important thing I learned was that nothing is more important than strategy. It doesn't really matter if you're empathetic, if you're compassionate, if you're visionary, you know, and so on. All those things are super important. You could list 25 or 30 different really highly important uh, attributes to a great leader. But if you don't make the right bets and you don't have the right strategy, nothing else matters. And so I learned about the most important aspect of business success, which is strategy. It's sort of the anatomy of, of business success. And that was a key thing that I learned. And I learned early because of the best Microsoft made and the plans to compete Microsoft made that were so critical to its success. So that I would say would be the single most important thing I learned. And then the importance of leadership, you know, you could go through the other key parts of leadership, you know, hiring to your weaknesses and communicating and uh, curating culture and aligning the organization appropriately and tracking and to, to improve and change, you know, that we could go through a long list in that regard. But that gives you sort of a, a, a key essence. 
Got that. Okay. So, you know, one of the words that I hear keep, keep coming up as it relates to, you know, strategy and the anatomy of the business of success, which I like, was making a bet. And it sounds like, you know, there's obviously a risk, but it's calculated risk on saying, hey, here's where we want to position ourselves. Here's where we want to focus. Here's where we think our investments, time, money, resources should go. I obviously want to ask you more about your book and, and then your strategy model, but how how does placing those bets sort of come about and how does an organization know where they need to put their money? Well, that's a great question. Obviously, I could give a framework and some ways to think about it. I, I can't give anyone the precise answer depending upon your business. But you're right. It's really, really key. Most companies have a fundamental bet, right? If you think about it, Microsoft bet on the PC, then bet on graphical user interface. Now is betting on the cloud, Apple bet on devices and consumer entertainment. You know, most companies have a singular bet and you could go through almost any company and they have a singular bet. If they're big enough, sometimes they'll have multiple bets, but in most cases they have a single bet. And the thing to remember is that that only matters relative to the competition. You know, it doesn't matter to use a basketball analogy. I know we're both basketball fans. It doesn't matter if you're a great team. If everyone else in your division is great, it's harder to win that way. But if you're a great team in a division of not great teams, then you're going to be in a much better situation. So picking a bet is a, an exercise. And I actually, we could talk about it if you want. I recommend going through a, sort of a strand, strategy planning offsite or, you know, exercise to, to help build your strategy and, and change it as appropriate. But that bet is is key. And then there's things that cascade down from that bet once you make it. Absolutely. Well, we could, I mean, everybody, all our listeners know that I'm a big fan of strategy offsites, even if now your offsites are going to be virtual. Uh, I, and I, Brad, I imagine you, you'd agree with me, you know, you have to have the strategic conversations, whether it's in a room, whatever that room is, you need to have those strategy conversations to figure out where those bets are. The other thing, Kevin Garnett, if you're listening, We'd be happy to have you bring the supersonics back. Brad is in Washington. I'm in Vancouver. So you can bring the supersonics back if you're listening. If anybody knows Kevin Garnett, bring him onto the podcast. That'd be great. But the interesting part about those bets, the singularity of bets and bets relative to the competition is how do you compete? Where can you win based on your specific skill set? I have a question because we talked a little bit about your nonprofit work. How do bets apply and how do those strategic choices apply to the nonprofit world or the, you know, the organizational mission-based world? Yeah, that's a great question. The nonprofit space is a bit trickier. Certainly every nonprofit makes bets too. And usually they make a fundamental bet on what problem they are tackling, such as social justice or helping kids or education or climate change or providing food and shelter to people who need it and so on. And certainly execution is important for all nonprofits, just like execution is key to the strategy of for-profits. But the difference with nonprofits is that the most important part of strategy in almost all cases is customer value. And sometimes in nonprofits, there's multiple customers. Uh, there's one guy in the University of Washington who coined the term the users, the choosers, and the people who pay the dues. And... The users are the people the nonprofits are trying to help, but sometimes they're the choosers. Uh, you know, for example, a government might be a chooser. They decide who gets access to the users, and the people who pay the dues are the donors. Um, so in nonprofits, the most important 
element to strategic success, and at least in most cases, uh, customer value sometimes gets a little complicated because the customer value of the, say, the donor is different than the customer value of the organization who is, you know, trying to provide, say, you know, uh, democracy reform or, or help kids. Mm. And that makes it a little bit of a challenge. But the same sort of model applies. The nonprofits who have made fundamental bets and are clear about them and have a unique position relative to the competition will be the most successful nonprofits. And what what I find interesting, again, going back to those parallels is, you know, with the Microsoft, you know, the, you guys were making bets in an uh, uncertain world of technology as in like the, the, the sphere of technology, the world of technology, technology advancements were relatively unknown and that you guys were maybe shaping it. And then now in the, if we look at industry and macroeconomic trends, you know, your business may have been disrupted. Your nonprofit organization may have been disrupted. The customer value that you were once able to provide, whether the what or the how may have been changed. And your strategy may need to adapt to say, you know, who are the users? What are the value that you provide them? And is that bet going to pay off? And some people might adapt to it and be successful and, and some people might not. Thoughts on that? Oh, I think that's absolutely true. I, in fact, just wrote a two-part blog post on this very issue of, of adapting to the tsunami tides of COVID-19. And I call it the COVID tsunami. And I think in some cases, there's really almost nothing you can do. I mean, you could, I think I'm a great strategist, but some people are just in a world of hurt and they don't have a lot of options. And even with those with options, as you said, they have to figure out how to adapt. How do they adapt their customer value? How do they adapt their bets? And they have to do that both in the short term and say, you know, shorter term to stay alive, but also think about what they're going to do a little bit longer term as the economy starts to open up. So one of the things that we're doing is, is recommending scenario planning uh, as a means of, of just not necessarily knowing what to do, but try to better understand the environment so that we are a little bit more educated when it comes to placing our bets. But let's dig in and say, given we've looked at this landscape of technology historically, we've looked at the, the business landscape in terms of what is required to be successful. We've looked at the nonprofit uh, landscape in terms of you know what it's needed or has been needed in six, to be successful. Now, how does that relate to strategy first? How does it relate to the context in your book? And how, do, how does it relate to the model that you use for helping organizations be successful in developing a winning strategy? We sort of already established the strategy first as sort of the preeminent focus for business success. And so then the question becomes, and this is what the book talked about, once it establishes for people why strategy is so important, is what is strategy and then tips about how to be successful with strategy. And the book basically focuses on strategy being your plan to compete and the bets we've already spoken about. And then define strategy as having three key components execution, market potential, and customer value. And they all matter relative to the competition. And to help folks remember that, I have a fun play on Einstein's famous E equals MC squared equation. So that uh, my formula or model is strategy equals E times MC squared. And the E is for execution, and the M is for market potential, and the C is for customer value. And just sort of coincidentally, Einstein's equation is called the theory of relativity. 
strategy first model, strategy equals E times MC squared, is relative to the competition as well. Uh, so those are what I call the three key components of strategy that I focus on in the part of the book where I define what strategy is. You had a question. No, I was I was laughing at your at your theory of relativity, which I think is awesome. I always have a question. I guess the, the next question is, given that we want to look at the parameters of, you know, customer value, market potential and execution. And I'd be interested to know in what order um, if we were to take that concept and somebody's like, I really like that. What can they do tomorrow? What can they do today with their team to start thinking strategically about these competencies. And then my sort of follow-up question is, what are the risks, roadblocks, what's gonna get in the way of executing that successfully? And you can go on as long as you like on that. The interesting thing about using E times MC squared, and the C is squared because customer value is most important in most businesses. There's a few exceptions like commodity businesses, but otherwise customer value is most important. Is you can actually use that as a model to gauge your success. And so what I actually do at, at strategy offsites and when I talk, you know, in speeches and stuff is go through how you can do that. And that's really kind of simple, actually. You uh, have a five point score for each category. So you can go and do a self-assessment and give yourself a score of one being low and five being high for execution, market potential and customer value. And you go and do that math basically and see sort of what your score is. And then you do the same thing for your competition and see what their score is. And then you compare. And now, of course, you can't actually give a precise score. This is just a gauge. It's just a way to sort of help you, you know, force the discipline of thinking about your business. But you get a good sense for how your score is relative to the competition and can think about then what can I do to increase my customer value or my market potential or execute better in order to have a greater disparity versus the competition? Because the only thing that really matters is your score relative to your customer's score. Your absolute score doesn't really matter a lot. And so that's sort of what I take people through um, in an offsite. And it's really important, by the way, for a leadership team to individually fill out the strategy first worksheet and assess what their strategy is, what their bet is, you know, what their score is for each of the key categories and so on. And then come together because what's happened in almost all cases I have found is that the leadership team doesn't actually completely agree on what the company strategy is. But once they do the worksheet and they all talk about their answers, they can come together on what the strategy is and then if necessary on what they should do to update it, revise it, improve it, and so on. You know, looking at that both uh, from an objective individual perspective and looking at it as a team and then having it as a... I don't know, landscape view, for lack of a better word, like seeing it all, well, relative to everybody else. What do you then do with that information as a team or as an individual leader? If you go through the exercise, you don't sugarcoat anything, um, you don't underestimate your competitors, and you sort of have a score, and you say, okay, this is what we're doing, this is what we're not doing. And then you kind of look at the key com sort of components to improving strategy, seek change, adapt to the tides, mine the gaps, build tall walls, climb short walls, and so on, then you can go through and adjust your strategies, decide how you want to change your bets. Uh, you know, I want to bet on, you know, obviously today in this environment, a lot of people want to bet on a stronger digital play. 
you want to think about that and adjust your bets and make sure you're all agreed on what the new strategy is. And then you go through the process of executing it and communicating it uh, throughout the company, aligning the organization, communicating it, curating it, and then tracking the new strategy. Knowing what your current strategy is, is really important so that everyone's on board and everyone comes from the same place. Because obviously you're not going to get anywhere you want to go if you don't know where, where you're going in the first place. And then using the strategy first model, E times MC squared, you can then gauge how maybe you want to change your strategy in order to make a better bet vis-a-vis your competition. Yeah, so I, what I hear in that is being aware of, or one of the importance is actually being aware of how the new strategy differs from the old strategy at every level of the organization. So when people see the whatever new communication comes out, they don't just go like, but aren't we doing this already? So like to the degree relatively of the, the new strategy versus the old. Did I capture that? Yeah, that captures that uh, you know, well. So for example, when I was brought in to lead MSN at Microsoft, the MSN division had no strategy. Morale was the lowest in the company on employee surveys. And uh, the place was sort of considered the laughing stock of Microsoft. And it took me a while to figure it out. But once I figured out the strategy, which was all about customer acquisition via things like at the time Hotmail, which is today Outlook.com, and instant messaging and a few of the more you know, sort of high traffic customer tools we had, and then driving them to the monetization tools such as search, then we could had a new strategy. And with that new strategy, then I communicated that to the entire organization in actually a gigantic meeting at a huge conference center here in town, and then align the organization. So for example, we didn't have hardly anybody on search, so I put key people on search and made sure that everybody knew what the goal was and what we were trying to achieve and what the new strategy was. And we rolled it out through the organization. Just people knowing the strategy in and of itself uh, really had a great response in terms of the morale of the group, but also a great response in terms of our success. And within a year, we became number one in search worldwide, number two in search in uh, the U.S., had increased our morale to just above the midpoint in the company from being, like I said, the worst. And we had doubled our traffic and doubled our revenue. And so all that was a huge success. Now, unfortunately, when I left, other people had different strategies and all the gains Microsoft made in search and some of the areas were lost, and that's unfortunate. But it still reflects that having a clear bet, communicating that bet, and making clear what the strategy was, and then executing well on it can have dramatic improvement and dramatic uh, consequences uh, a company or division within a company. Yeah, well, you know, you're preaching to the choir here, and I think especially, well, I say in these times of change, but all the time, if you don't know where you're going, you're never going to get there. If everybody on the team isn't aligned, then you're going to waste time and money. And understanding both the internal environment and the external environment and trying to position yourself um, ahead of it is, you know, well, how companies have been successful. And going back to a sports analogy, Wayne Gretzky saying, go to, don't go where the puck is, go to where the puck is going to be. So being aware of what that is and trying to make those changes and gains sooner rather than later. So as we sort of wrap up here, you know, I do want to say like, we have this, we've implemented strategic thinking, we've implemented the theory of relativity, we've looked at our execution, our market potential, our customer value, we've communicated, communicated as a team, where are some stumbling blocks 
in that that our leaders have to watch out for. One of the ones that you had mentioned was like sugarcoating things, like actually not putting all the information all on the table and, and making things seem better, maybe for posturing, maybe just to avoid looking bad. And then the other is actually not communicating that to the rest of the company in, in a sufficient way. What are some of the other sort of stumbling blocks that people might run into as they start to adapt their strategy and, and drive forward? All right, well, let me mention four or five additional things. One is underestimating competitors. A lot of times we think, oh, the competitor can't react quickly, they can't do this, they can't do that. But in the end, most competitors are pretty smart. And as a consequence, it's very dangerous to underestimate them. So that's one risk. Another risk is arrogance. You know, there's a fine line between confidence and arrogance. And I find that the people need to make sure as leaders that they are not too arrogant because when you get to be too arrogant, you miss market changes. You miss what's going on with your, your customers. You miss what's going on with your employees and you get too stubborn and, and don't adapt to change. So that's yet another one. I would say complexity is a third one. Most strategies are simple <laughs> and the best strategies are generally simple. Microsoft better on the PC, like I talked about, or, you know, uh, Uber betting on, you know, sort of this gig economy and people driving their own cars as sort of taxis, you know, LinkedIn betting on a social network for business. I mean, most of these fundamental bets are fairly simple. And so simplicity is really important and complexity in strategy can be dangerous. And then one other one I would say that maybe is the most important of all is a lack of customer empathy and understanding. Like I mentioned earlier, and the reason the C is squared in the strategy first model is because in almost all cases, strategy is by far the most important. I mean, you can think of a company like Tesla. They've had production problems. You know, you never know exactly what Elon's going to say this week, but their cars are great. <laughs> and as a consequence, they've done really well. And that customer focus and, and understanding and that clear bet on great cars, great, you know, obviously the electric car as well has, has done them well. And if you don't have a good customer understanding and good customer empathy, that is a danger for anyone trying to develop winning strategies. Overconfidence in oneself and, and ignoring not just the current needs, and this is again going to the, the, the changes in the consumer trends, but you know what they needed before is not what they need now. And, and you know, adopting a, a humble attitude, what you think, I think that's what I maybe undertones of being humble around what you think you know about your customer, what you think you know about your competition, and frankly, what you think you know about yourself as an organization. Yeah, humility is really important, I think. Um, and I try to reinforce that with my, in my speeches, my clients that I work with, and, and you know, when I led large organizations and small organizations myself. Um, you know, you want to avoid the hubris trap. Absolutely. Uh, Brett, where can uh, where can people get a hold of you? Where can they get your book? Where can they read more of uh, of your writings and 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 get some more of your content? So uh, the first place to go is my website, bradchase.net. That has all sorts of information on it. The worksheets I talked about, um, st information about the book, which is available at all major bookstores and Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all those kind of places. It also has all my blog posts. Uh, they can also follow me on LinkedIn. I'm not much of a Facebook person, but I do have a good presence on, on LinkedIn and they can follow me there. Fantastic. 
Brad, thank you for the chat today. It's been awesome. Time flew, but I, I really appreciate you sharing uh, with our listeners and, and helping them, you know, really put strategy first and help them, uh, you know, well, win and grow. Uh, you're welcome. We're really glad to be here. Nice chat. My guest today has been Brad Chase, who is the author of Strategy First, How Businesses Win Big. If you enjoyed today's episode of the Strategy and Leadership Podcast, please rate it five stars on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Uh, be sure to share this podcast with anybody developing strategy or if you see their business being disrupted, changing, moving around, be sure to send this to them because it will mean the difference between, well, success and potentially failure. Once again, my name is Anthony Taylor. This has been the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. Thanks for joining us and until next time. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. If you're in the process of renewing your strategic plan and you're looking for a framework to align your team and to create a clear vision, clear goals, and a clear roadmap on how to get there, be sure to check out our signature course that will walk you through the process that we've used to create hundreds of strategic plans successfully for organizations all over the world. You'll get instant access to all the videos and documents right away. And so whether you're planning a strategy session in three months, three weeks, or three days, you'll be able to get the most out of your meeting and have everyone be on the same page and bought into your plan. It's the exact same framework that we've used for our clients and we've packaged it in a way that you can use it easily yourself. So visit smestrategy.net slash course and you can use the code podcast for $100 off. That's smestrategy.net slash course and use the code podcast for $100 off and you'll get instant access to all of the tools to help you create your strategic plan successfully and have everybody moving forward on the same page. Once again, this is Anthony Taylor with the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you real soon.